Well, hello, hello. Welcome to the end of your week. Assuming you are hearing this on Friday, which not everybody will. But it's the Nose, our weekly cultural roundtable. We're, I must say, I am surprised not by what we are talking about today, but what we are not talking about today. Because I, I thought I had a winner here uh, with an article in The Cut by Lauren Bassett, Laura Bassett, uh, titled, An Interview with the Man Who Keeps Uploading My Feet to Wikifeed. First of all, I had no idea there was such a thing as Wikifeed. And it's exactly what it sounds like. And it's, and you can, <laughs> you can only up- upload pictures of people's feet there if they have an IMDB listing, which seems like a very arbitrary, you know, hurdle to cross. And th- that's the threshold. As long as there's an IMDB listing for you, I can take, you know, find a picture of your feet wherever I might find them and put them up on Wikifeed. Not that I would do that. I'm just saying I could. Anyway, and then she, this woman, she interviews the, the guy, the guy who keeps uploading her feet, and he seems like a very nice person, actually. All right, we're not talking about that. That's what we're not talking about. I hope we have established that later in the show. We're going to talk about uh, Hemingway, the five-hour and twenty-eight minute, but who's counting? Documentary by Ken Burns and Lynn Novick, uh, airing not only uh, on our local public TV station but others as well. Uh, and um, and well, anyway, we'll get to all that. We'll get to all that. I, I, let me just say. There's a conversation to be had about this that would be interesting to someone who didn't really care about the literary legacy of Ernest Hemingway. Uh, so, you know, I mean, just at least consider that possibility. Uh, and But we're going to begin, because we're not talking about Wikifeed here at the beginning, so <laughs> we're going to <laughs> we begin. We could, Colin, if you really no, want to. No, 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 because it's like now it's just, I, I'll be the creep if I do that. So first of all, I should say that Irene Papoulos, who you just, you just heard, teaches writing at Trinity College. She's with us today. So is Tanisha Dugan, uh, artistic producer at Theater Works. No, we're going to begin by talking about office spaces, because office spaces are kind of a, what a lot of people don't have right now. Now, I happen to be sitting in my regular radio studio with Cat Pastor on the other side of the glass. But the rest of this floor is basically just Will Smith and his dog running around in this post-apocalyptic landscape. There's like, there's no, <laughs> nobody here. Um, it's just weird. Uh, Are you the legend in this metaphor? I, I think I'm just the, I'm, I'm the, uh, this, the large quantity of toilet paper that someone has. Uh, <laughs> there actually oh. is, there actually is in that movie, an I Am Legend, there's a scene where he goes into somebody's uh, a unit, and, and they had they were in fact uh, hoarding toilet paper. So uh, it's we're certainly seeing down the road on that. No, most people aren't back at work. Some people are back at work. Irene is kind of back at work. And what we're going to talk about actually are three different essays. One of them is called. Two of them are by a guy named Paul Ford, who's the co-founder of Postlight. Uh, one called Pleasant Office Things, uh, subtitled in celebration of whiteboards, office sandwiches, and arguing in person, uh, and also the secret essential geography of the office. A workplace has its own informal cardinal directions, elevator word, kitchen word, bathroom word. It's a map we share. Uh, and by Arthur C. Brooks, the hidden toll of remote work, which I found the least interesting of these. I feel like I already know about the hidden toll <laughs> of remote work. But I don't know. I, I almost don't know where to begin. I mean, I know where I would like to begin, but I don't, I don't want to begin where I would like to begin. So, Irene, maybe we should just, you know, each of us has a different relationship with the place where we typically would have worked prior to a year ago. Uh, and, and you're sort of back at your place of work. And so explain what's happening there. You can be in your office, but... But that's about the limit of it, right? 
That's right. Um, I, I, I'm in a building at Trinity College, the, you know, the English department building uh, that has two classrooms in it. But this year, all year, the classrooms are completely closed and no students are allowed in the building and you have to have your ID card to get in. And we had sort of limited, there's limited people, faculty members even allowed to be there. So everyone's in their offices, but we keep our door closed because we don't want any circulation of COVID or anything. So it's very, it's nothing like what it's supposed to be, which is sort of people bustling around and poking their head in your office every five minutes. Um, and so I've, I, you know, it feels, you know, it's, it's, it's weird. To, and then they, they gave us these little, um, these little cards to put on the door that look like do not disturb cards. And on one side, it's green and it says, I'm inside, exclamation point. So if there happens to be a person who's actually in their office too, and they see it, they could conceivably knock on your door and then you have to put your mask on and talk to them in a socially distanced way, you know, but the students are nowhere to be seen in there. And then we go, I teach in person, but the classrooms are different, that all the chairs are separated from each other. All the students have masks on. There's always a couple of students who can't make it, who are up on the computer projected because they're, they have to come in on Zoom. And so it's just, very different from what it's what it's you what it usually is. And can, let me ask you one more question, which is like when it's when it was the way that it usually is. Like, was there? I mean, these first two articles that we read, and I'll say a little bit more about them as we go. But they're sort of about you know moving around your office place. There's a room where people go to cry, or you know, there's a room where people go when somebody has to browbeat somebody else, or there's a certain set of etiquettes. Like, I'll give you just a quick example from here, which is that uh, when I first, before I was even exactly hired, I was being walked around the building. So this would have been 11 or 12 years ago. Uh, walked around the building prior to being hired, and I was with John. Jankowski uh, and one of the, the bigger bosses in, in, the, in the course of just kind of meeting me as a, a, a future hire mentioned to John that he there was an extra Keurig coffee maker up there and he wanted uh, to give it to John. And John in this very uncomfortable way said that he didn't want it. He wasn't going to bring it down there. And I learned later that was because John believed that we should have communal coffee and everybody should have had to share sort of making sure we buy some coffee, we make some coffee, we clean the pot, that there's like something that actually happens uh, over the course of doing something like that that doesn't happen if everybody has a little Keurig pot and they make their own coffee. And then they make you know, and he was absolutely right about that. Um, but I just, Irene, just very quickly, like when things are normal, is there a lot of ebb and flow or? everybody cosseted in their uh, office? Well, I guess I would say that, um, you know, for academics, there's, it's like most people have their own office, but it's the question of how wide your door is open. You know, if your door is closed, that means I'm working, don't bother me, or I'm having a private conversation that you're not invited to. But then there's sort of like different levels of how much you're going to open your door. You know, if you sort of open it and put a book in, so it's like an inch open, then it's like, okay, somebody could come in, but they would really be interrupting you, you know, and then you could sort of use the door stopper and have it be open, what, like what I do, which is like a foot or so, maybe a foot and a half. And then it's like, okay, people can come in. And then other people have it wide open. So it's kind of like, anyone can walk in and have a conversation whenever they want. And so can students. And that person must love students because students are always sitting in their office and coming in and walking out, you know? So that's the first place I think of when I think of the etiquette of our building is how wide your door is open. All right. Let's go to what I take to be the Grinch slash Scrooge of communal office life, uh, Tanisha <laughs> Dugan, uh, who has no interest in going back to the office at all. Well, now why would that be? 
That's, you know, it's funny you say that because it's true. I have no interest in going back to the office primarily because I have been able to manage my life and I hesitate to say work-life balance because I think it puts those two things in opposition. And for me, they are all my life. And so I think the merging of them has been actually really satisfying, but also enlightening. And so going back to the office is, is to me about reclaiming a division between those things that I'm not interested in. So that, so it's, it's primarily about that and not so much the uh, conviviality around communal working. Um, because I do think I have to figure out how to manage that when everybody starts to come back to the office. Um, because I think there's something to be said for those impromptu conversations and those moments you know, in the kitchen. Which, right, you know, for us, or the, or the hallway, um, that I think I, I'll have to sort of reinsert. But that is such a minimal part of the sixty hours I was once spending in that building uh, that I am not going to trade the balance that I've I've been able to accomplish for those moments of inspiration that I think I can still find. So you said it was in. Can I just ask? You said it was enlightening. So, like, what was what was what were you enlightened about? Was it about that balance? Yeah, for yeah. sure. Yeah, right. And yeah. like that, my life is 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 more than my career or my job or the building that I'm in. And that rewriting the like rewriting, not write as in to pen to paper, but like correcting the navigation of my ship, which had me spending more time with people who were not my family. Um, felt correct. And I also struggle with like the idea that your workplace is a family. I think that there are a community that you are with and that you build something together with, but they are not your family. So like being able to like, you know, reorient to myself where my family was an equal uh, position as my career and my work felt really important to me. Yeah, I mean, I just want to say that I'm I'm a big believer in going into the office. I'm not a big believer in going into the office for eight hours a day, five days a week. I think for an awful lot of us, that doesn't accomplish that much. But um, or or there's a point of diminishing returns anyway. But I do feel as though you know, like th- these articles that we read. I mean, the, the guy, the guy Paul Ford, he talks about you know, how he and the other co-founder, they're walking back through New York to back to the office after some meeting, and they stop and they just buy tons of candy and snacks and they throw them out on the uh, on one of the big tables in the office and everybody, and you know, there's, the other day, this is so sad, the other day, Gina Amatruda, who's one of the few people who's in this building, because the building does not know even what to do if Gina is in it. Gina, the building, like, stops knowing that it's a building or what it's for if Gene leaves. So, but so Gene brought donuts the other day, and I just happened to be going through like kind of a non-donut period for obvious reasons. And springtime, summer bod, yeah. You know, it just and I just <laughs> like who's gonna eat these donuts? So usually it's like the cause for incredible celebration because there really are more people who want to eat donuts than there are donuts, typically. Uh, no matter how many donuts you buy. But it's not like that right now. But I do think things like that, you know, or he talked about how he and his his co-founder partner, they they like to kind of argue with each other and call each other names, uh, and they they sort of know know exactly what's going on there. But if you do it on Zoom, it really feels more like an actual fight. And I just think there's a ton of stuff that goes on interpersonally. I'll give one last example. As as Jonathan McNichol and uh, Betsy Kaplan, the producers of the show, can, can verify, 
Uh, often on a Friday afternoon, like this one, you know, we get done with the show, we do some other stuff, and we're working just to get ready for next week, you know, but it's just like a couple hours or something. And by four o'clock, I'm really ready to get out of here. Um, and, but what I, the way that I announce this often is that I sing the Porter Wagner song, I've enjoyed as much of this as I can stand. Yeah. Uh, and I walk out singing that song. And, you know, it's stuff like that that, I think that's what we're missing. We're missing all of the ways in which we are incidentally human. Uh, I mean, it's incidental to our actual jobs. Does that make any, any sense? It totally does. And that's the thing that I'm actually really interested in re-engaging with. Because what you're talking about has nothing to do with work. I mean, yes, the center, it's like Thanksgiving dinner, right? Like, yes, the food is there, but really the food is the excuse for all of us to get together. I, I am very much interested in how do we find those connections again? Because I think that is the most human part of the work thing that we're, that's buried inside the geography of the office, right? Like, where do you have the human connections? And then when do you, where, where can you have your actual human connections? Because there's another, you know, moment in, in the essay where they talk about like, well, where do you go to cry? And I think to myself, well, you have the right to go home if you like, like you don't have to find a place to have an emotional outpouring that may feel inappropriate in this public space. You have the autonomy and the agency to go home unless you live, you work in a place that doesn't give you that. And then we need to investigate what work looks like, because that feels a little bit like something else. Yeah, but some, uh, sometimes people just need to cry and then they're ready to get to go back to work, too. You know? Totally. Yeah. Yes, you should. It, you shouldn't feel like you have to find that space literally in the building, right? You should have the agency. Yes, if you want it to be the building, sure. But the agency to take a walk, the agency to take a drive, the agency to say to call it a day. I think those are those are the things inside the donuts and the and the songs that I would love to hear in person uh, that I think we are craving. Yeah, I mean, yeah. Uh, yeah. Go ahead, Irene. Yeah. Um, okay, I was just going to say, yeah, I mean, I definitely have gone into my office, closed the door, cried, and, and then gone back out. But that's because I'm lucky to have my own office where I can do that. Uh, and I wouldn't want to do it in the bathroom. So I see what you mean. Like if there was, it was like a choice between open space or bathroom or whatever. Um, but I'm thinking the thing that I miss the most by far is, as you're, as you're suggesting, just bodies sitting around a table together. You know, and the giggling that can go on or just like meeting someone's glance across the table and sort of sharing a moment of like, oh, yeah, we know that other person, you know, and all that. And that is family, not necessarily in the in, in the deepest sense of the word, but it's a different it's the other family. It's like the work family, people that you just kind of like and you have fun with as you're doing something, as you're figuring out and talking and all that. So it's just bodies sitting around the table is I just feel just like a, a visceral desire for right now. I think also uh, your office space. I don't know. I my for the first 20 years of my career, my office space was the newsroom or newsrooms of the Hartford Current, which don't even exist anymore, which I find a completely terrifying idea. The Hartford Current or it's actually its owners uh, closed the newsroom. Uh, but, you know, newsrooms and, and even here I've worked at two different radio stations. The last place I was actually had four different radio stations in one building. And all of these places works workplaces like this. It's kind of like. Uh, you know, territory that's run by some rival gangs or something. You know, there's like places you can go and places you can't go and places you probably should bring somebody else with you if you go or you can't go there after, you know, four o'clock in the afternoon. You know, I mean, there's like stuff like that that you just sort of begin to learn 
how to live in an organization, partly by being there physically in an organization. And the, I don't know, do you guys do you guys work in places where like the rooms have names? Like we used to have a place called the Crying Room, which it was a really bad crying room because it had big windows. But uh, and now they call it the Clam Room or the Clamshell Room or I don't know what the hell. I don't even know why they call it that. And like here where I'm sitting right now, all of the studios have numbers. Uh, and so the studio, but I've worked here almost 12 years and I don't know what the numbers are. Like, what, am I in studio one or four or cat knows? She says I'm in four. I mean, I have no idea. I just never learned them. But like we made up funny names for them, you know, because like you have, I, I don't know. It's, there's a geography. It's like one of the articles says, draw a map of where you work. And it is kind of interesting. Yeah. If you draw that map, right, you're going to very much personalize like what these spaces mean. Yeah, I was just going to say that, like, there there are personalities to rooms. We do have names of rooms. That is as much a function of being a nonprofit and and giving rooms names by virtue of, of their giving uh, ability. But but I think that rooms have personalities. And one of the things I, I you know, I think we have to figure out, we have a conference room uh, that is, like, doesn't have the vibe of the place you actually want to have a creative meeting in. And so one of the things that I think we have to solve for is, like, where is the place that we have creative, you know, like you said, Irene, that place that we all sit around the table and sort of work things out. And the thing about the newsroom that sort of, you know, brings some, some light bulbs to my brain is that like a newsroom is about an exchange of ideas in my fantasy. I've never worked in one, but the, the ability to talk to a person across the room who may be working in a different uh, department or, or on a different beat allows you to think and free associate to support the work that you're doing. And I know, you know, places like Google and, and a lot of like, you know, Silicon Valley, you know, Inc. Magazine have talked about this new kind of geography that is more communal, that is trying to support those kinds of engagements and conversations. Um, and I think it's about like the personality. Yeah, the clamshell sounds like a room that you close yourself, that's about closing yourself off and away. Um, where's the... Where's the where's the joshing room? <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, and there are some real questions about. I mean, we kind of went to a more of an more um, open office space here uh, quite a few years ago, and I have some real questions about whether that really works. I think the, the other thing that you're talking about, where there's sort of designated places where certain kinds of things happen, and some of those things are creative things. You know, I think that does work, um, but like we just don't have any of that right now. I mean, Irene, you know, is like. In, I mean, it's like I, that sounds worse than being at home, right? If you're like, if you can only be in your office, it, with it, the door it is pretty bad. Yeah, the open yeah. Door, the open office is like the open concept house, right? Like great in theory, but then when you actually start living in it, and you're like, you know what? I do need a door. Yeah, <laughs> beautiful, but not very functional. <laughs> Yeah, no, I, I sort of agree with that. Although I also I haven't actually I, I had an office here for about a year and then they took it away. But I have an office right now at Yale that I've never been to. Uh, like I, I don't even know where it is or what the number of the room is or anything. But in the past when I've had that office in academia, I don't know. There is something a little uh, I, I think even though I'm not a very gregarious person, there's a way in which the flow of stuff and the noise of stuff, you know, and the. The kind of like you just even, you know, one thing I really miss right now is I used to just love so much the 
two or three minutes before I went into the studio. So, like, you know, maybe around 12.57 or something on a typical day. You just watch everybody kind of go into their battle stations, you know, and you just realize, you know, some last-minute things have to click into place. And if you're any good at what you do, you're going to get this right. You're going to figure out how to do this thing, you know, by the time you get on the air. I used to love that feeling so much, just watching everybody, all the people that I work with, watching them, you know, step into their positions. I mean, Tanisha, I'm guessing it's it's a little bit like like right before curtain, you know, um, there's sort of a sense of people who know how to do what they're doing, stepping to the places where they do those things. That's like a really good feeling if, in fact, you like and trust the people you're working with. But, you know, I don't ha- I miss that so much. I think. It's, oh, sorry. Go ahead. Oh, well, I was going to say it's a, th- a sense of belonging and it's a, a sense of familiarity. Like the new person doesn't quite get that 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 sort of choreography for a while and then they sort of it takes a little while before you get the choreography of how that works i mean it's like going to classes is, is a similar thing going to meetings everybody knows how to do it there's a there's just like a, a yeah it's almost like a choreography even even i would say for academics so tanisha what were you gonna say no i was gonna say you know when we used to do the nose together in mm. person that was, you know, one of the most fascinating things to watch, right? Because we would come in and everyone would be at their their standing desks at the time. Um, and you would watch, you know, Colin, you know, Colin would be in, in his space and Jonathan would kind of come into the room and Kion would come and take a photo and you would see this machine move around you. And you're right, Irene, I think, you know, the dance of us figuring out which seat we're going to sit, you know, in, and some of us have the very, you know, our regular seat, in orientation to and sitting and you know there is this this choreography that happens in preparation um that i think is is really lovely and and very much the sort of organism of a workplace that i think is lost in this time right what is that organism of of a workplace what is that 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 dance that ballet that sort of science of how we do things um and i suspect We've learned some new ways um, to shortcut outside of that, but I think there's probably some um, providence that we were missing um, in not being able to have that that and there's so little serendipity too when we're working yeah. I mean look nobody's going to bring you any freaking donuts if you're working at home <laughs> if you want some donuts you can go get them and then you have to own those donuts they didn't just sort of you know they didn't just appear out of some some the generosity of some you know passing coworker. you actually have to first of all identify yourself as a person who wanted donuts enough to go get them um, and it's like a completely different relationship even with the donut even with something as basic as that uh, you have to That's sort of true. you know you're in a very different different place somehow. There's and you gotta and, get your own snacks. It's true, right? Yeah, and 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 you know <laughs> that's right. And, and Betsy Kaplan never eats the donuts, uh, and we all look at her and say, "Come on, just have one. Come on." Um, but um, but yeah, and I think that that serendipity spreads out in lots of other ways and gets into what Tanisha was talking about before with creativity. You can't plan to have the conversation you're kind of accidentally going to stumble into at three twenty-three on a Thursday afternoon. There's no way you can do it. You just, you know, and, and you're sure, sure as hell not going to Zoom it, you know. <laughs> that's not happening. That's the proliferation of Zoom, right? Because that sort of accidental moment of surprise uh, and creation is is hard to, to, to just happen into. We have all of these Zooms to try to approximate a connection in which perhaps something creative will happen inside the agenda that we've created. 
Um, or at least that's what I find in my work, right? Like, like there are more meetings than there ever were, but I think it's trying to approximate this, this moment of, of genius that is just hard to come by without actual interaction. Right. We're going to wrap pretty much here, but Irene, do you want the last word in any way? I was thinking about you. I'll, I'll, I'll set you up, okay? Which is okay. I, like uh, among the people that I know, you would be one of the people who I think kind of values conversation, what you sometimes refer to as real conversation, really talking more than – I mean you're sort of up in, in an upper percentile in terms of what I think the value is you place on that kind of thing. So I don't know. Maybe this isn't that interesting to you because what we're really talking about is maybe something a little less, a, a little more fleeting, a little quicker, a little – more passing by than what you would necessarily value as a human interaction. You know, I would have said that, you know, a long time ago uh, when I was in my twenties, but now I've come to value the, the, the sort of lighter conversation as a way of a, of a different kind of interaction that actually is a kind of intimacy also, or can be. So I'm, I wouldn't, I definitely wouldn't um, kick this kind of conversation, that kind of conversation. Out to out the of curb, bed, you know? yeah, or out yeah. of bed, all right. Um, geez, I, I had a much more prosaic place the conversation was originating from and going, but uh, all right. So, but I guess that'll that, that'll lead us perfectly into Ernest Hemingway, right? Uh, who would he exactly. kick out of or pull into bed, and who would he think he was when he was doing it? The answer may surprise you. The confiscated. You constantly waiting for a paycheck. Twelve months pass by and you still ain't get paid yet. Here's an optimistic motto. If you ever late for today, you can say you early for tomorrow. Most nine to fives are hard because the description of the job ain't no We are back. Before we uh, get into the next uh, segment, let me say that there are times when I wish that we could somehow or other share with the public the, the Slack conversation that is going on while the on-air conversation is going on. And for parts of the preceding segment, there was a Slack conversation going on among Cat Pastor, uh, Jonathan McNichol, and me about my feet. Uh, I have very pretty feet. All right. I've said it. Um, all right. So um, – Do you have an IMDb? That's yes. I know. I don't. I don't have an IMDb. So you cannot put my feet up on Wikifeet. But, um, oh, so it's almost a reason for me. I mean, I don't, Tanisha, can't you get me a part in some, you know, slasher like, yes. film or something? <laughs> 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 then I could have a career as a person whose feet are on Wikipedia. <laughs> All right. So uh, Tanisha Dugan is artistic producer at Theater Works, uh, has a very level home life balance, uh, home work, work life balance, whatever it's called uh, right. these days. Uh, Irene Papula teaches uh, writing at Trinity College. And when she's there, she's inside. She's inside. Uh, All right. Um, uh, Hemingway is a three-part PBS documentary. Uh, he did not have a good work-life balance, by the way. You might have guessed that. Uh, it premiered this week and can be streamed from PBS.org or from the PBS app. It's five hours and 28 minutes long, but it's going to race right by, or maybe not. Uh, it's directed by Ken Burns and Lynn Novick, uh, and um, it's written by Je- Jeffrey Ward, which is worth mentioning. These Burns documentaries, like, somebody writes them. It's usually him, Jeffrey C. Ward. And there's, like, they are written. I don't know. You really, you know, particularly now, you notice the writing in this one, obviously, because it's about a writer. Uh, Hemingway's narrated by Peter Coyote. Who else? Uh, Jeff Daniels uh, sometimes voices Ernest Hemingway on it, and other voices in, heard in the documentary include Mary Louise Parker, Meryl Streep, and uh, perhaps notably um, Carrie Russell, uh, who voices, uh, I guess it's, it's, it's the first wife, the first of the four wives, um, the passionate um, Hadley. Uh, all right. So um, 
I don't know. Where should we begin? I guess maybe just sort of just we'll just begin by just like drawing a, a little bit of blood from each one of you and, and you know, sending it out to the lab. Uh, so, uh, Irene, I mean, I don't know what what stays with you from this documentary. Um, a lot of things. Um, well, first of all, just mentioning the voices. I love the way the letters were, you know, just just first of all, the beauty of the letters that people wrote and the statements that they wrote uh, stays with me and the images um, all the images of him. And, um, you know, maybe the one that, that is the, that sort of everyone is talking about or is his interest in femininity, his own femininity, um, stays with me. And I, I don't know, there's, I, I probably have a whole list of things that stay with me after it, but I thought it was, and also the, the fact that, you know, there were some really wonderful things about him and some really horrible things about him. And they were both in him. And that's what it seems like it was about for me in a way that I thought was interesting. Oh, absolutely. Um, uh, well, we'll come back to that femininity thing. Uh, um, and yeah. Tanisha, besides the fact that it didn't need to be five hours and 28 minutes long, what else stays with you from it? <laughs> um, you know, a lot of uh, some some overlap with what Irene has to say, right? I, I loved um, the letters. I mean, you know, Ken Burns is such an icon, right? That that he even has a style in uh, iMovie, right? Like you can uh, you can make you know Ken Burns is a is a way of of, of editing, um, and that's always really effective. I loved seeing um, Hemingway's writing, uh, the edits, the 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 strikeouts, the rewrites. Uh, you know, as an artist, I connected to seeing that ephemera, um, and I really, I, I mean. He's so stinking handsome. And I think that really like got me because I've often, you know, I'm, I'm curious about the cult of celebrity. And if I could go back into academia, I think that would be what I would study because I think there's something around fame and popularity and how those bodies affect culture at large. That's just really fascinating to me and, and, and how image how beauty is at the core of someone's ability to be effective um, in pursuing. Work-life balance. There's your work-life balance. Life. But it's a, you know, it's a great point that you're making. And I think probably if you put up four pictures of kind of similar looking guys and told me one of them was Faulkner, I'm not sure I would be able to know which one. But, you know, like people really know what Hemingway looked like. And yes, uh, he is uh, uh, even more striking, I think, in a lot of the photographs, uh, particularly as a younger man than than any of us have had understood. Before we say anything more, I'm going to play a little clip here. I do want to say if anybody ever makes um, a movie uh, documentary about my life and explores my shortcomings, I would like Edna O'Brien to be available to defend me. Not that she really knows me or anything, but I, she's really good at it. So you're going to hear her, uh, Michael Katakis, who is a writer and I believe also administers or oversees uh, Hemingway's literary estate. And you'll also hear Jeff Daniels because you just have to hear General Jeff Daniels like once a day probably in America. But he is the voice of Ernest Hemingway. One of his weaknesses, I was going to say failings, and it was a great pity. It's a great pity for any writer. He loved an audience. He loved an audience and in front of an audience, he lost the best part of himself by trying to impress the audience. I hate the myth of Hemingway. And the reason I hate the myth of Hemingway, it obscures the man 
And the man is much more interesting than the myth. I think he was a terrific father sometimes. I think that he was a loving husband sometimes. I think he was like so many people, except this enormous talent. Hemingway is complicated. He's very complicated. The great thing is to last and get your work done and see and hear and learn and understand and write when there is something that you know and not before and not too damned much after. And there you go with all those little Ken Burns touches. We hear a little typewriter in the background and we have the perfectly little pitched odd sounding mandolin and drum arrangement. Um, but, uh, you know, um, this is all predicted. I mean, the thing that you brought up in the 1920s, Zelda Fitzgerald said of Ernest Hemingway, nobody is as male as all that. Uh, and, um, you know, maybe a sense that he was overcorrecting. Uh, and, and yeah, I mean, if there's like a huge... Takeaway, or a, you know, a, a thing that just you know is, is has arisen from this documentary that just wasn't part of the the previous conversation. It is all this stuff. It's this stuff about wanting to role play as a woman in bed with his fourth wife, and and playing that out also in his fiction. And uh, I didn't realize that um, that that his uh, his third child. Um, uh, spent, um, I think, the latter half uh, of of her life uh, as a trans person. Uh, and one time in a fit of irritation at him, addressed him in a letter as Ernestine, apparently having kind of picked up some of these things. I mean, I mean, this is this is like nowhere in my understanding of Hemingway, which I maybe is just just very primitive. And I didn't read the Dearborn book and I didn't know this stuff. Yeah. I mean, I have to say I didn't either. And um so and, and it was and it was interesting in the documentary the way they use the psychology to 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 explore it you know that his mother was such a controlling person and so so in some you know first of all she she liked the idea of him as a girl dressed him as a girl a couple of times and and his father he thought was weak and he was mad at his father for being weak and his mother was the strong force so in some way i think they're sort of developing the idea that he he was his mother in a certain way he was like her he had a he you know he had that controlling per- personality as part of himself and it's interesting to think about how you know just about how that worked or how the psychology works or at least they're trying to get us to think about it i think Mm-hmm. It's so funny. I had to watch it three times, the first episode three times to get through it. And I watched <laughs> it from the beginning every time. And so I would actually put a little edit on the mom's dressing of, of him and his sister. Um, and as a mom of young kids, I, I think it, you know it, it appeared to me as if, yes, she was a controlling woman, but the dressing the children in similar clothes was, I it seemed to me from the mother's perspective was both... Uh, her, she she dressed both the, her her son and her daughter in the binary. Sometimes it was girls' clothes, sometimes it was boys' clothes. They were in overalls and coveralls, but they were also in dresses. And I thought, and like that felt really fresh to me, um, considering what my assumptions of what parenting looks like at that time period. Um, and I'm actually really interested, which is why I'm I am willing to give episode two and three um, another some more some more attention. Um, is I'm interested in I don't think Ken Burns did this, 
but at least the introduction of a non-binary existence within um, our artists. Um, and I would say, you know, I, I don't know if he was overcorrecting or if he was just being him in an understanding where he is on the spectrum of gender, on the spectrum of sexuality, um, on the spectrum of, of, of performance, which I think writing is a part of. Um, I, I kind of loved the mom as a as an introduction to Ernest Ernestine's uh, <laughs> psychology. You know, I think I thought that was really interesting. I mean, yes, very Freudian and and probably oversimplified and, and allowed me to impart a lot of my own person on top of what I was was watching. But I, it gave me the ability to, to sort of um, not agree but like step into the facts that they were giving me without a lot of skepticism. Right. right? I mean, the mom, the mom does not get a particularly nice ride here in this documentary. She is depicted by one of his siblings as, you know, the father was in love with the mom. The mom was in love with herself uh, and that she never let her children forget that she was giving up an opera career to raise their snotty little selves. Uh, And and there's even a suggestion, which Hilton Als teases out in a terrific piece in The New Yorker, that that Hemingway's eventual uh, obsession is the wrong word, but he really kind of attaches himself in a very powerful way to Gertrude Stein, uh, both uh, artistically and literarily, but also very personally. And Alice ends his piece by saying, absorbing Stein's influence and admitting to, the, into, admitting to his attraction was one way of getting at what he always longed for to be a girl in love with a powerful woman. Now, I don't know if that's entirely a fair statement. <laughs> But but it, he he suggests that that that's all born by the ambivalent relationship with the mother. Uh, well, and, yeah, yeah but you know it's in, yeah. I'm so, and I'm sorry to interrupt you, but I mean I just want to pick up on what Tanisha said because I think that's a really good point that she he already was like that, and so he had to but he had to struggle. It's it's not as though his mother made him like that as much as she saw like whatever that was in him arose maybe in relationship to her, but. Um, it, you know, and then he had to cover it up with all this macho stuff. You know, he had to, because it, in the culture that he was in, there was no acceptance of men that wanted to have their womanly side maybe. Uh, and so he, he developed this like super macho affect that everybody, that, that is his part of his famous avatar, you know, and in rea- in re- reaction to that. Yeah. I- to who he actually was, you know, to hide who he really was. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah. Well, you know, the, all of this kind of raises a point, and I, we, I actually would like to talk about this for another 10 minutes, but we don't have those. Uh, but, you know, this came up yesterday on the show. We were talking about Joni Mitchell's album Blue, and one of the uh, guests was saying, you know, in a way, it doesn't really help to know that she's breaking off her relationship with Graham Nash and having an affair with James Taylor or whatever. That that just interferes with the relationship between the artist and the audience. Uh, you should be allowed to interact with the work here without having to know all this other stuff that's very specific to Joni Mitchell, but not to you. And, and you know, I mean, I'll give you each of, I'd love to hear, I mean, I'm not sure, I'm not probably going to go back and reread all of Hemingway, but I'm not sure if I do reread some of Hemingway that it's helpful that I know all this stuff. I don't know. Tanisha? You know, that is like the age old conversation, especially yeah. in 2021. Mm. Uh, in this time, I hate to continue the, the word of cancel culture. Right. Mm. So I think I think you're right. I think there is a, a space where the work lives that is divorced from the person. Right. This is this is the output. And you take it 
from your perspective and you and you glom onto that. But I think there is also something to be gained by understanding or knowing aspects of the person, right? And I don't think that the work, I think sometimes that can make the work better or make you see the work in a different way. But I think your relationship to the creation should be your relationship to the creation in and of itself, by itself, separate from the artist. That is where I sit today. I may sit in a different place 20 years from now, but I, as a product of 2021, I'm very much like the work is valuable without the editorial. And the editorial may be great. It may be terrible. It may be terrifying. <laughs> uh, but my relationship to the work is mine and, and, and should be divorced from the artist. All right. Irene, what about you? I, I, I actually agree. And I mean, I would say like that album blue is about, about my feelings. Let's, you know, that's it. It's about my feelings, <laughs> but, but it's also interesting to, to know the details. So I think we can, we can separate, you know, to an extent we can separate our, 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 our sort of aesthetic relationship with the art, with our sort of more gossipy interest in what was going on around it. But those feel really different. I don't, I don't think it ruins it to, to, to think about who she was really think, thinking about, at least for me, it doesn't, it doesn't ruin it because I feel like I can, I can separate it, but I think you have to, because if you, if you see it together, then it just, I agree. Like the, the, your relationship with the work is, is, you know, it's, it, it's not, it's not, you're not relating to a work of art in the same way. At least right. that's my first thought. Um, we have to probably take a break here. I do want to quickly say that I, I, I was wondering whether Hemingway was like the person I needed to see a biography, a long biography uh, documentary about. But I will say that he's very, I feel like we're in a very liminal moment right here. You know, we're, we're kind of, you know, we've got one foot in the pandemic and one foot in the end of the pandemic. And you could just spell that out across, I think, issues of gender and issues of race and stuff like that. Just sort of a way in which we're in this very threshold moment. And he's a threshold kind of guy. He's always has one foot in war and one foot in the joys and uh, of liberty and, and uh, you know, running around Europe and having a great time and apparently one foot uh, in, in each gender to a certain degree too. There's a way in which he's a much more liminal guy than I would have guessed and maybe he is a good person to talk about right at this particular moment. Anyway, we have to take a break. Uh, I want to say thank you to Cat Pastor, technical producer, looking a lot more chipper today. She got the Johnson & Johnson vaccine, and they gave her the baby shampoo. They injected her with that instead of the vaccine. She wasn't feeling too great, but that's, I'm joking. That Don't be afraid of vaccines. Uh, and also thanks to Jonathan McPants, who produced this episode. Uh, and, um, well, so uh, I'm going to tell you that at the end of this uh, show today, instead of the usual song that you hear, we're going to go out with a DMX's um, uh, a No Sunshine, uh, that being because DMX, after a long time on uh, being kept alive artificially uh, after a terrible heart episode, appears to have, uh, have died uh, today. So I'm very sad. But... Um, all right, so I'm uh, sorry to bring everybody down, but now we're going to make some recommendations. Irene, why don't you go first? Um, okay. Well, one thing I didn't say about the about the documentary is its 20, 20th century sensibility that I just loved going into and just kind of forgetting everything about the 21st century and thinking about Hemingway and his 20, 20th century life. 
And so that, that, and one big part of the 20th century is reading novels. So I'm going to recommend a novel that's called, and it's a kind of a freaky novel called Drive Your Plow Over the Bones of the Dead is the title. And it's written by this woman, Olga Tokarczyk, who won the Nobel Prize for Literature in 2018. She's Polish. So it's translated. And it just takes me into us, anyone, into this very strange world of this aging woman who lives by herself and she, but it turns, but it's kind of like a murder mystery because she discovers a dead body at the beginning and it's, and she's an astrologer and she's going through the snow, trudging through the snow in this small town in the middle of nowhere and translating William Blake's poetry. And it's just hard, an impossible novel to describe, but it's kind of a, 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 a gloomy, but intriguing escape from 21st century reality, at least for me. All right. And Tanisha Dugan, what have you got for us today? I'm going to keep it simple and springy. Um, I am going to, what do we call Endorse. <laughs> Melanated organic seeds. Uh, it is that time of year for gardening. Uh, and I have continued on my path of, of small, uh, purchasing small and purchasing black if I can. Um, and this is a black woman owned um, uh, seed company. It's called Melanated Organic Seeds. And because I am super black, I made sure, because I'm going to try to grow watermelons this year, that I bought my watermelon seeds from a black farmer because, you know, they're like the, the best African fruit. Um, so that's, that's, my, that's my endorsement for today. And then also, I mean, shout out to DMX, Rough no. Riders, Swiss Beats, the whole squad. Um, rest in power, brother. All right. Um, well, I'm going to um, endorse a, a movie that's uh, out. I believe is available on Netflix right now. It's called Concrete Cowboy. Uh, it's actually about a phenomenon that exists in Philadelphia. It's a fictional movie. It stars uh, Idris Elba and the guy from the kid from Stranger Things. I don't know his name. And actually, uh, it's got a whole bunch of actors. And actually, Method Man is in it. A bunch of actors you've seen in, in other movies like uh, like Moonlight. Uh, and um, it's about a phenomenon in Philadelphia. Although it's there's a version of it here in Hartford. And there was an even bigger version of it in Hartford. And it is um, uh, black uh, people who kept horses in the city and preserved a tradition that they linked with the with the high high percentage and the, un, the not very well documented fact that a high percentage of America's so-called cowboys of the 19th century, you know, Western frontier were in fact black. Uh, and they tried to keep that tradition going in an urban environment. This is the story of a kid who needs to get out of Detroit and uh, be with his father, Idris Elba, in a different place in Philadelphia. His father is kind of the center of this horse culture there. Uh, and it's it's a ter- just a, it's a you know a really terrific story, and it's a story not only I don't know you'll recognize the bones of the story itself. You're probably going to be able to figure out who makes it out and who doesn't in the first 20, 25 minutes. But there's also just the introduction to that culture. And here in Hartford, we still have the Ebony Horse Women, uh, and they're actually very involved in equine therapy. I think these days. Uh, but I, I remember the equine ho- Ebony Horse Men too. These, these are all they had you know I think more stables than they had now up in. Keeney Park, and this, they were doing a very similar thing, I think, keeping that pla- tradition of the black cowboy alive in, in their city. Uh, and so it's called Concrete Cowboy. I really do recommend it. I think you'll really enjoy it. Today, 
For the first time in a year, I did that thing where you go to a coffee place and you walk in and you buy some coffee, you buy a cup of coffee and maybe a, a pastry, and then you sit outside and you talk to a friend. I haven't done that in a year. And I did that uh, today with my friend Ilza, who uh, Irene knows. Uh, and we did it at Dora, which is a fairly new coffee shop. It's over there on the sort of on the four corners between uh, New Britain Avenue and, uh, and South uh, Main Street. And it's the guy who runs all those restaurants like Avere and Treva and stuff like that. And he's very good at what he does. And so the coffee is very good and the pastries are great. It's not really like a European cafe in the sense that when you walk out, you can't go anywhere. You just have to get in your car. There is no place that you can walk to from there. Uh, but it, it was just sort of nice to do that and to the point of our original conversation at the beginning of the show to have a real conversation with a living human being that I could look at. And I ran into somebody else that I knew who was also sitting outside. And I thought, oh, this, this is what it's like when the war is over, when the shelling stops come up from your bunkers. We're almost at that point. Not all the way, but almost at that point. It's a good feeling. Anyway, Doro is the place. Very nice coffee. Very nice pastries. Uh, kind of a European-style mini market, too. Tanisha Dugan is an artistic producer at Theatre Works. Irene Papoulis teaches writing at Trinity College. Uh, goodbye. Goodbye, DMX. Yeah.